Well, we're going to be back in Mark chapter 14. We're winding down Jesus' life and the gospel of Mark. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, one of the things that we like to do is to take um, an extended period of our worship service and really dig into the Word. And we're going to do that here this morning. But just by way of introduction, I want to just tell you that I love Harrison Ford movies. I I liked him in American Graffiti. I loved Han Solo in the only three Star Wars movies they should have made. Um, I loved him in, in the first three Indiana Jones movies. Didn't see the last one on principle. Um, <laughs> um, I liked him in Witness when he's hiding out among the Amish. You remember that one? That's a good one. Okay, but probably, and I loved him as Jack Ryan, you know, out of the, I think it's Tom Clancy novels, you know, he he makes a good president. Uh, And I go, oh man, that guy is cool. You know, he kind of last action hero president, you know. Uh, But one of my favorite Harrison Ford movies of all time is The Fugitive. Do you remember that one? About 1993. And uh, some of you are probably even old enough to remember the TV show, that the movie was based on. I never saw the TV show, but I did see the movie. And uh, it features Harrison Ford as a man named Dr. Richard Kimball. And Dr. Richard Kimball is falsely accused of murdering his wife, whom he loved. And the actual murderer is a one-armed man. But Dr. Richard Kimball is on his way to the death house. He has been sentenced to death. He has been convicted of murder, and he is going to sit and await death row, his execution. And on his way, his transport crashes, and he escapes. And it's this thrilling kind of scene, and boy, you need a big screen TV to see this, because it is cool how the thing crashes, and he gets out, and it's great. And then the best role that Tommy Lee Jones has ever had, this one, Uh, Deputy Marshal Sam Gerard, and he gets there and he has this great line. He says, all right, listen up, people. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uh, uneven ground barring injuries is four miles per hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want from each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, and doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. And you're like, whoo, the chase is on. And they're, and they're off and, you know, and it's, and it's a question of who's going to get him first. Is Dr. Richard Kimball going to be able to prove his innocence, that he's not guilty of murder, that he didn't kill his wife and find the one-armed man, or... Is Sam Gerard, the greatest manhunter that ever lived, going to track him down and arrest him before he can prove that he is innocent? It's a great movie. I love the story. And I think the reason that I love it is because everything in me cheers for Richard Kimball to prove his innocence. Because there is a part of, I think, not just me, but all of us as people that cheers when justice is done and boos whenever there is injustice. And we know that if Sam Gerard, who we also like because he represents the law and doing the right thing, that if he catches him before he can prove his innocence, that an injustice will have been done 
And so we want Dr. Kimball to, to get away. And we love it when he runs down that culvert and does a Peter Pan off that dam right there and into the water and swims off and the dogs can't find him. And oh, it's great, right? He's going to prove his innocence. He's going to escape. Do you know what? In our, in our passage this morning, in the Gospel of Mark, what we're going to see is a man far more innocent than Dr. Richard Kimball, who is not going to turn fugitive, though he could, who is not going to strike down all of his captors and accusers, though he could, who is going to stand trial for a crime for which he is not guilty, and who is going to go to his death for you and for me, who are guilty. So, if you've got your Bible, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. And Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. Jesus is on trial. All of his disciples have run off and abandoned him. And no one will come to defend him. Not one person will come to his defense. You know, you think about that in our society, uh, at the sentencing hearing of the worst criminal you can imagine, his mama will be there saying, he is such a good boy. Jesus is innocent, and there is no one to speak in his defense. Jesus is standing on trial before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the group of 71. It's 70 elders and chief priests and leaders, plus the high priest, making 71 men. And they are within the province of Judea, the highest authority, except for the procurator, Pilate. He's the Roman governor, but because of the fact that this is a Jewish nation, and they tend to be rebellious against Rome, Rome has given them wide latitude and authority to run their own affairs, except for they are not allowed to condemn anyone to death. They reserve that power for themselves. 
And the trial was being conducted in the residence of Joseph Caiaphas. First name is Joseph. He's known in the scriptures a lot of times as Caiaphas. Caiaphas is his family name. And that residence, it would be close to the temple, possibly even connected to it. And Jesus is being tried there. And it's a, it's a kangaroo court. The outcome is not in doubt. This is like one of those old Soviet show trials, you know. Bring out the enemy of the people. That's a little prejudicial, but here he comes, <laughs> you know. Um, the outcome is not in doubt. The outcome is foreordained. And what they're looking for is not whether or not Jesus is guilty, but how to come up with a charge of which to declare him guilty so that they can be seen as innocent before the people who are not going to like what is about to happen. And, to have it, and they have to have the trial immediately for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that under Jewish law, when you arrested someone, you had to try them immediately. But here is the other one that's important, is that in the Jewish calendar, the, the days start at dawn and um, and. A new day starts, I mean, I'm sorry, I've got that backwards. A new day starts at sunset and begins at dawn. And so it's dark right now. It's probably, according to most Bible teachers, about three in the morning when this, uh, when this trial is taking place. But they've only got until dawn. And the reason they only have until dawn is this. The Romans held their trials. So in other words, if they want to get him to Pilate where he can be executed, they've got like three hours to do it. And then on top of that, under their own Jewish legal tradition, they have to have a verdict uh, of death, and then the next day come, and then the same verdict be issued again in a capital trial. And so they are cutting it as close as they can possibly cut it, because they go, well, at dawn, it's going to be the next day, and we'll have to wait until tonight to kill him, which we can't do because it's the Sabbath and it's the feast day. And besides, and then they'll have to wait until the end of the day, Saturday after the Sabbath to kill him. And by that time, a couple, 48 hours will have elapsed. And people might find out what we're doing and storm the house. And besides that, the law says we have to hold the trial right now. And notice what's interesting about this. The irony of this process is that they are being so finely legalistic when, according to the appearance of legality. But what they're doing is actually illegal. You were not supposed to try people at night. You were definitely not supposed to try people and not allow anyone to speak in their defense. And yet that is what happens. And they're searching for, uh, they're searching for some basis to try him. And, and they bring in these witnesses. And the witnesses under Jewish law were the prosecution. You didn't have a prosecuting attorney like we have today. But you would have witnesses who would bring accusation. And they were brought in one at a time. And in order to condemn someone or convict them of a crime under the law, you had to have a minimum of two witnesses which, whose testimony agreed in every respect about what had happened. And so finally they come up with two guys 
who are testifying, they're actually misquoting Jesus and taking his words out of context about a statement that he made about if you destroy the, this, this temple, his body, in three days it will rise again. And they say that, no, no, he was talking about that temple, the Jewish temple, which had taken 70 years to build. If you destroy that one in three days, I will, I will he said, I will destroy that temple, and in three days, I'll build another one. They twisted what he said. And threatening to destroy the temple or desecrating it in any way was a capital crime. Even, in, even under Roman law, if you, uh, if you destroyed a place of worship, that was a capital offense. Because the thought was that you are angering the God or the gods whose temple that is, and the rest of us might suffer. So we're putting you to death to show that we're not associated with that in any way. And so they go, ah, we've got something we can hang around his neck, except that their testimony didn't agree. And so then they can't come up with anything. And then they remember, oh, I know that the guy did claim to be the Messiah, and we know that the Messiah is the Son of God. Because the Old Testament tells us so. So let's ask him that. And he'll self-incriminate on this. And literally what the te- how the text reads is that the high priest goes to him and keeps on asking. He just asks him and asks him and asks him and asks him until finally he says, Are you the Christ? That is the Messiah. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? The blessed one there is God. It's a Jewish kind of circumlocution for God because uh, Jews held the name of God, Yahweh, to be, hot, to be, to be the, the holiest uh, word, and you could not say that. And so they did not say that lest they come under a condemnation for taking God's name in vain. They didn't say that. They would come up with another name. In fact, you'll even see Jesus do that. He says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus answers back in a really interesting way. I am. Now, that's just an answer, but it's also the, um, it's also the word from which, in Hebrew, the name of God is derived. Remember when God speaks out of the burning bush to Moses, he's, and Moses says, who shall I tell the Israelites has sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. The one who exists, the one who is. And then he says this, he says, and you will see the son of man coming on the, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, I am God, and you will see me coming in judgment. You who are judging me will be judged by me in the future, and if you're in doubt about my identity, just wait, because your judgment is coming, and I will be the one to bring it. Now, what are we to think about a man who claims to be God? 
Well, you can only have a couple of possible options, right? Either the guy is crazy, because there are people uh, in sanitariums uh, who claim to be God, right? You can meet Jesus Christ at the local mental facility. Um, or you, you have a person who is an evil person, like Charles Manson. Charles Manson said one time in an interview with Geraldo Rivera, he said, I do not follow law, I am law. He claimed to be God. Jim Jones claimed to be God. We all know how that turned out. He's an evil man. Or he was and is truly who he claimed to be. Only a few ways to understand this. But you can't be neutral. Either he's a nut, he's evil, or he's gone. And the high priest says, I don't think he's a nut. I think he's evil. Because I'm sure that he's not God. He doesn't look like what I think God should look like. Therefore, he's not God. And he tears his robe and he condemns Jesus of blasphemy because he, in his terms, a mere man, makes himself out to be God. But under Roman law, blasphemy is not a capital offense. We've got to come up with another way of doing this. Under Jewish law, you could stone someone for that. But under Roman law, you couldn't because Caesar claims to be God. So this is not like a unique thing. They've got to come up with something else. But while this is going on, no one rises in Jesus' defense, not even Peter, who is there. And we will see why here later in the text. Let's, let's continue on. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you are talking about, he said, and went into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing by said to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Three times a little lowly servant girl comes to Peter and calls him out as a follower of Jesus. And three times, with increasing levels of intensity, he denies not only knowing Jesus, but even knowing anything about Jesus. Even when the evidence is overwhelming, 
Peter is the only Galilean in the room other than Jesus. And if you're curious, uh, apparently there were some linguistic differences between people from Galilee and people from Judea. So if, if I was a person from Mississippi, let's say, y'all could definitely tell where I had been from. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> um, you could hear it in his dialect. Just like you can identify a person from Minnesota <laughs> or Wisconsin or these kinds of places, right? You can hear that difference. You know where they are from, right? They know where, where Peter is from. Let's see here. There's a whole bunch of Judeans and two Galileans. You must be together. No. I'm not. I don't know the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. I just showed up here because there was a fire, and it's cold. And, you know, I've been eating Passover, and, you know, I just kind of lost my way and wound up here. And it says that he began to call down curses on himself. Probably what's happening here is a, a very Jewish form of cursing where you would do this. May the Lord deal with me. May it be ever so severely. If I have any idea what it is you're talking about, if I have any notion who this person Jesus is, may God judge me. He's trying to clear himself. This is the same dude who an hour previous had a sword and was going to defend the Lord's life and kill the, kill the servant of the high priest and who prior to that was going, even if all these other guys are lame and don't have enough backbone to stand up for you, Jesus, I'll go to the grave. I'll go to death. They can crucify me for all I care. I'm going. And here comes the servant girl. Hey, you were with that Nazarene, Jesus. Moi? No, not me. A little later. Yeah, yeah, of course you were with him. You're, you're from Galilee, just like he is. Hillbilly? No, 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 not me. Oh, no, may God judge me. And then he hears the sound of the rooster growing the second time. And he goes out and he weeps, knowing that for all his bravado, he was not willing to stand even in Jesus' defense at his trial. Never mind go to death for him. He wasn't even willing to stand up for him at the trial. And in the meantime, Jesus is being beaten, not only by the members of the Sanhedrin, who are saying, they blindfold him and, and whack him in the face and then say, now, prophet, prophesy who hit you. That's fairly scornful, not to mention cruel. And then the temple guards begin to beat him. And then they take him to Pilate. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, and so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply. 
And Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested, a man called Barabbas, was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate was a weak ruler. Historians tell us that he had received his procuratorship uh, or his proconsulship um, because he was, he was under the patronage of a man named Lucius, Lucius Alias Sejanus. And he held, Sejanus held a favored position as counsel to the Roman emperor uh, Tiberius Caesar. And Sejanus was a well-known anti-Semite. Uh, he had accused the Jews of all kinds of wrongdoing, had had all of them expelled from Rome, um, and Pilate walked in his footsteps. Uh, one of the things he had done was that he had robbed the temple treasury to build a Roman aqueduct in another city, and that caused a riot in Jerusalem. And this may, in fact, be the incident that's referred to here about the insurrection these people who had been arrested in the insurrection were arrested possibly due to the fact that they were rioting with reference to the, the robbery of the temple. Uh, he had also ordered the Roman soldiers to place their battle standards all around the perimeter of the temple. And these were big flags with a metal symbol at the top that identified their unit. And normally they had a picture of the Roman Caesar on the top of this, on this, in the metal. And Roman soldiers would traditionally offer sacrifices and burn incense and pray before their battle standard as they went into battle. And the Jews rightly considered that to be paganism and the making of graven images, and they decorated the temple with them. And there was nearly a riot over that. And on top of that, Pilate's patron had just been executed just prior to this for lying because it, an investigation was held and it was found out that he had trumped up the charges against the Jewish people, which had led to their expulsion from Rome and the confiscation of their property there. And so Sejanus had just been executed and Pilate is under pressure to prove that he is really a loyal follower of the emperor. And so here come all of the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin, and they are saying to him things like, anybody who lets this man go is not a friend of Caesar's. Because they don't come with the charge of blasphemy, they come with the charge that he is leading a rebellion. But he can find no evidence that Jesus is doing any such thing. 
And the Jewish rulers knew exactly what kind of position Pilate was in, and they knew how to push his buttons. And so given a choice between Barabbas, the son of the father, and Jesus, the authentic son of the father, the people are demanding Barabbas, a real rebel against Rome, be released. Instead of Jesus, who is in no way a rebel, who is not leading a rebellion, who has in fact done nothing which is worthy of death. He's not even a blasphemer. You know, the, the old line that guys have as they play sports is, it ain't bragging if it's true. It isn't bragging that you're the Son of God. It isn't blasphemy if you are the Son of God. And He is the Son of God. And yet they're going to put God to death for, play, for claiming to be God, truthfully. Pilate, because he is weak, because his position politically is weak, decides that Jesus is going to be the sacrificial lamb for his political career. And he's going to satisfy the crowd because they're screaming, crucify this man. And at the beginning of this message, I I told you that I love that movie, The Fugitive, because you root for the innocent guy to to be proven innocent and the law not to catch up with him. But I am not really sure, I got to be honest with you, how I need to root in this situation. On the one hand, reading the words of the crowd and hearing them echo, crucify him, crucify him, just makes my skin crawl. Because I know that they are about to perpetuate the greatest injustice that has ever been done in the history of the world. Bar none. You don't get any more unjust than crucifying the Son of God who is perfectly holy. And yet, on the other hand, I know this, that if Jesus doesn't die, that I am going to stand before God unforgiven, bearing the full weight of my sin and go to hell justly condemned by a holy God. So what do I say? Do I say with the crowd, crucify him so that I might be saved? Or do I say, no, release this man. He is not guilty of any crime. He's the son of God. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't put me in the position of having to make a choice. At least not a choice like that. Because the Bible emphatically proclaims that it was according to the express plan and purpose and will of God that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the world was made, God had already put into place a plan to redeem the people that he knew that though he would create them perfect, that they would fall into sin. And he had already put into place the mechanisms by which at a particular time, according to the exact prophetic calendar given in Daniel, 
that the time of the Messiah would be fulfilled and that on Passover day, at the time of the evening sacrifice of the Lamb, Jesus would be crucified and die. To cover over with his blood the sins not of himself, but of all of us. To be the perfect Passover lamb. Now, an innocent man who was and is the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, was condemned to die for what we did. And you have two options on how you're going to respond to that act of unspeakable, indescribable love. You can either reject Jesus as a crazy person and a liar and a wicked person. And you can say, with the high priest, he deceives the people. He leads them astray. Or you can say what Thomas said in the Gospel of John and what every person who is a true follower of Jesus says of him, my Lord and my God. But the fact is, is that every human being must make a choice, and not to make a choice is to make a choice. To either accept Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for your sin, though he had done none of his own, it was for you and for me that he went to the cross. And those who decide rightly about him fall before him and cry out, my Lord and my God. Or you can reject and say, he deceives the people. Jesus is a good man, but he's not God. That's one form of rejection. Jesus is a liar. Jesus is a nut. Jesus is a legend that the church made up. All forms of rejection of the one who came perfectly according to God's plan and timing for you and for me. Which side are you on? Anybody want to change teams? (laughs) The greatest day of my life was the day that I bowed my knee before the one who is my Lord and my God, Jesus Christ. And if you have not done that, I would encourage you and invite you that today is the day to do that. Today is the day of salvation. Or as the writer of Hebrews quotes his Old Testament and says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts respond. And those of you who are already followers of Jesus, maybe you have been like me, blessed to be a follower of Jesus for many years. Let me ask you this question. As you think about Peter, how far are you, how far am I, willing to go to follow Jesus? Are you willing to go all the way to death if that's necessary? Wendy, Dennis, Bertie and guys. Hopefully the day does not come in Jordan where you have to make that choice. Hopefully it never comes to those of us who are safely here in the U.S. But one day it may. And if it does, 
Are you willing to follow Jesus all the way to death? We who are here in the U.S. have a different challenge. The challenge in, in our day is not that we will be asked to de- deny Jesus actively. Either turn or burn at the stake. Turn or be made into a rock pile. Turn or be crucified like the one you identify as Messiah. We're probably not going to face that choice. What we face is the slow, incremental assimilation to paganism that gradually sucks us in and, we, and, and encourages us to make an accommodation here and another little one 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 here and, oh, by the way, deny this and deny the inerrancy of Scripture, deny the creation, deny biblical sexual morality, deny this over here, Deny that there is any distinction in role between man and woman, husband and wife. Deny that there are any differences between the sexes. Deny everything the Bible has to say about everything a little bit at a time. And criticize those within the church who are willing to stand on what the Bible teaches. Because it's not nice, it's not tolerant, it's not easy to live out and preach and proclaim and do. How far are you willing to go to follow Jesus? Peter wept when he failed. Do we weep even when we fail? Let's pray.